0: reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depths of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they've closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The grass withers and the flower fades. (laughs)
1: Let's pray together. Father, I was just so struck as Gary got to verses 16 and 17. I was so struck by what a complainer I am. I forget and I minimize the blessing that you have poured out upon me to see even more than the disciples saw and to hear even more clearly than the disciples heard. Oh, Lord, would you grant that we would feel the weight of these great blessings that when this cross is behind me and we look at it and think about it today, we know what you did there through your Son. And even to see that, to hear that good news, is to be blessed by you immeasurably. So, Lord, on both sides of this pulpit, will you... Grant that we would steward this good news as the the treasure, the infinitely valuable treasure that it actually is. And I pray particularly, Father, and I know that many join me in praying that today you would save the lost in this sanctuary. They may not even know they're lost, but find them. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Um, I've told you for the last three weeks, right at the beginning of the sermon, but it's, it's good to be reminded again that, the, that the, uh, the parables in Matthew 13 address a huge issue that is raised by Jesus' ministry. And the issue is this. If Jesus is who He says He is, and if Jesus is who His works and words show Him to be, then why... Why, 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 if He really is the King of Heaven? Why, then, is the response to His ministry and His person so mixed, not only in our day, but even in His? There's a certain sense in which that ought to shock us. And we've spent the last two weeks looking at the parable of the sower and how Jesus, in that parable, begins to explain Give us some handles for understanding this mixed response to him and his ministry and in that parable you'll remember that Jesus uh, describes uh, really six profiles of people three who hear all six of them hear his uh, gospel all six of them hear the word of the kingdom and only and three of them respond with uh, uh, with an unfruitful response, they, they respond. Uh, the gospel, although it's sown in their hearts, verse 19 says, it, it's not grasped. And people don't understand it because they don't want to understand it, and uh, they don't bear any fruit through that gospel. Three unfruitful, and then there are three fruitful, and we looked at the fruitful ones yesterday. Now, the question is, what explains that division? Because it's a radical division, And thus far, as we've looked at the parable of the sower, Jesus telling the parable in verses 1 through 9, and then Jesus explaining the parable in 18 through 23, so far what we've seen is that the dominant, but not exclusive, but the dominant weight of of Jesus' teaching to explain that division, that radical division between unfruitfulness and fruitfulness, so far we've seen that the dominant weight of Jesus' explanation is on human responsibility. The choices that people make or do not make when they hear the gospel. And it is very important to feel that urgency. But this morning, we look at verses 10 through 17. That's really our focus this morning. And uh, for those of you who are especially mathematically gifted... So, Gary, I'm thinking about you. Over the last week, last couple weeks, you've seen that I've skipped. I've skipped verses 10 through 17. Well, not skipped them, really. I've just postponed them. Jesus, The way Matthew has organized his material, Jesus tells the parable in verses 1 through 9 and then explains it in verses 18 through 23 only to the disciples, not the crowd. And in verses 10 through 17, you have this aside to the disciples. It's only between Jesus and the disciples. And in the, and, and Jesus explains there why he teaches in parables and, and gives us a fuller explanation for the mixed response to his ministry. And in these verses, what we're going to see is that Jesus emphasizes the sovereignty of God and how it interacts with, if you will, the responsibility of men. Human responsibility and the sovereignty of God in explaining and understanding the mixed responses to Jesus' ministry. Now, i got to say this as a preface up front. I said it a few weeks ago when we were looking at the, at the parable about the treasure. The Bible, despite what we do when we hear these two uh, themes, the Bible never pits these things against one another. The Bible teaches both And does it in a way that one is never emphasized at the expense of the other. Like the more sovereign God is, the less responsible man is. Or the more responsible man is, the less sovereign God is. That's how we think. That is not how the Holy Spirit thinks. And that is not what we're going to see Jesus say in verses 10 through 17. So this morning, what I want to do with you is I want to look at three themes in these verses. I want us to think about the sovereignty of God as the explanation for this division among people, and that's a division by God's design. I want us to see how Jesus also uh, emphasizes the responsibility of men and women and children in responding to his message, and that's the division by man's design, and then we're finally going to look at opportunity, which is how uh, Jesus, uh, God really gives us a vision of his kingdom. So we're going to do that, but before I do that, let me issue a a pastoral caveat. There's a right way to listen to this text and a wrong way to listen to this text. The wrong way to listen to this text is to say, okay, now at last my theological puzzle is going to get solved. Or my, the, the, my, the, my preferred theological system is going to be trumpeted. Friends, that's not the right way to think this morning. It's not how I want to uh, minister God's word to you. It's not what I believe God wants you to receive this morning and, or how he wants to respond. The only right response is to understand that in this text, this is, this is not a matter for detached curiosity This is a matter for attached, very deeply attached devotion and humility, because God is revealed, the living God, my friends, is revealing himself to us through this text. Each one of us individually. He has turned his face toward us in this passage, and he is letting us see him for who he really is. And so the only right response to that on both sides of this pulpit is to make haste like Moses on Mount Sinai, to make haste, to bow low and worship. So let's, let's with that caveat, move into seeing uh, the, the theme of God's sovereignty, division by God's design, and that's really in verses 9 through 12. I think our passage starts in a, in a very interesting way um, because, you know, Jesus tells the parable of verses 1 through 9, at the end of at the end of the parable in verse nine, he says he has this kind of this cryptic statement: "He who has ears, let him hear." It's almost like he doesn't expect people to hear, right? What do you mean, "He who has ears, let him hear"? So, don't they all have ears? And the disciples come to him in verse ten, and uh, I think it's a veiled, not so veiled criticism of his preaching. It may just be a question, but certainly there. They're challenging him and they're saying, why do you speak to them in parables? I mean, think about this situation. Jesus just comes to the beach. All these people gather around him. I mean, this is what they wanted, right? All these people gather around them. great crowds. In fact, it's such a great crowd on the beach around Jesus that, that the best way for him to be able to address them all is to get in a boat, probably with the disciples, push off from the shore a little bit, and then he's got the whole crowd there and he can address them all at once. And this looks good, right? I mean, Jesus, you've got the crowd. Now, what are you going to do? How does the master exploit that moment? He tells them this parable and doesn't explain it to them. And the disciples say, Lord, don't waste the crowd. Why are you talking to them in parables? You've got to put the cookies on the low shelf here. And what Jesus has to say is just shocking. It's not a mistake. It's not a flaw in his preaching. It's his purpose. Jesus doesn't expect everyone to hear him. He's not just talking statistics. He's talking purpose here, design. And the summary of Jesus' answer to the disciples is in verses 11 and 12. Let me just read them again, because they're they're staggering if you pay attention to them. And he answered them, to you, that's the disciples, it, now notice these verbs, okay, it's been a while since we, since I let my inner grammarian come out in the pulpit, but it's coming out now, so I want you to rejoice in the wonder of grammar, do I have to say that again? Verse 11, to you it has been given, past passive, to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, the crowds, it has not been given, past, past passive. For to the one who has, more will be given passive voice again, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, future passive. That's four passive verbs. Do you see that? And that means that the disciples and the crowds are the objects of someone else's action. And that actor is God. These are what, uh, what commentators call divine passives, meaning God is the one who's the giver. God is the one who's the taker. And so what we need to be clear about, before I get into the details of verses 11 and 12, what I want you to see as a summary is that Jesus' answer, again, the, think about the situation. The setup is that the, he's told the parable, and on its face, if you just read the parable, you're like, well, what is that about? It just sounds like a kind of a sloppy sower. But really, this parable is about the kingdom of heaven. We know that from the explanation that we've been studying the last two weeks. So why doesn't Jesus explain it? And the disciples say, don't make it so obscure. Don't make them work. See, a parable is, is not simple. A parable requires the hearer to interact. A parable requires... The, the, the listener, to commit him or herself to the teaching and to put him or herself under that teaching and to say, I need to understand this. I need to chew this. And the disciples are saying, you can't expect that of people. And Jesus says, well, let me tell you something. This is, this is not by just a statistical outcome. I'm not describing the likely effects of my ministry I'm talking to you about a design, an intentional outcome, a sovereign purpose for my teaching that not everyone will grasp. In other words, what Jesus is saying between verses 11 and 12 is that his teaching, when he brings out the news of his kingdom, the word of his kingdom, he intends, not just it will have, but he intends two simultaneous effects. It will both give and take. It will be teaching that will have the effects of both, both judgment and blessing. It will simultaneously, for some, add and others subtract. It's just like what God says in Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. You ever thought about this? I mean, God says, you know, it's an amazing pair of verses about the, God's intention and the power of his word. He says, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and don't return there without watering the earth, and making it bear and sprout, and giving seed to the sower, and bread to the eater. So this is illustration, rain and snow coming down from heaven. It's a simile, right? Rain and snow come down from heaven. They, they don't go back to heaven without watering the earth. They come into contact with the earth, and when when the rain and the snow come into contact with the earth, they, they cause it to bear and sprout. And what happens from that harvest is some seed goes to the sower, some of that seed is eaten as bread for the eater, and God says, it's just like my word. My word comes, the word that comes from my mouth. It never comes back to me empty. Never. It always, it shall always uh, accomplish what I purpose. It shall always succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's saying, my rate of return is always 100%. None of God's Word is ever wasted. It always accomplishes what what He says. And And have you ever puzzled about that? Well, how could that be true in Jesus' case, in the case of Jesus' ministry? Well, Jesus is telling us in verses 11 through 12, it's his purpose that sometimes his word is going to come with a purpose of judgment. And sometimes his word is going to come with a purpose of blessing. And those harvests will always be yielded because he's God. Now, I know for some of you that's hard to hear. But remember where you always need to start. Who is God? See, if you ever face a thorny theological problem, you always have to take it all the way to the top and say, what do I know about God according to what He's revealed about Himself in His Word? So now let's look. That's what Jesus really does for us in verses 11 through 12. So let's, let's look at verses 11 and 12 more specifically and how Jesus is showing us that this division between the fruitful, excuse me, the unfruitful and the fruitful is a division by design, by God's design. Now notice uh, two things in verse 11 in particular, okay? To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. I want you to notice two things that Jesus shows us here. Uh, about how this division the ways that he emphasizes that this division in the responses to his ministry is by God's design. First he he talks about the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. We we'll want to understand what those are. And secondly, he talks about the giving or not giving of those secrets, okay? You see those two things in verse 11, okay? There's hiddenness and there's givenness. Let's think first about the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And and really, our first question is to say, what in the world does that mean? What does Jesus mean by the secrets of the kingdom of heaven? Now, in the ESV, the ESV translates it, this word in the Greek translates it secrets. But elsewhere in the New Testament, this same word is often translated mysteries because literally, the word in the original is mysteria. Okay, it sounds just like our, our word for mystery. Now, in English, when we use the word mystery, when we say something's a mystery, what we usually mean is that it's something that's unknowable, especially when we talk about God. That's a mystery, which means I can't know it. But in the New Testament, when that word is used, it's used a lot by the Apostle Paul, and I've given you some of the text in your reflection quote where he uses it. But when, when Paul, when the, the rest of the New Testament, when it uses that word, it doesn't refer to something that's unknowable. It refers to something that can only be known by men or women or children, right, by people, if God reveals it to them. In other words, the secret that Jesus is talking about is something that cannot be known unless it is shown, Now, that may not seem like a big distinction to you, but you know it's very different from how we think about learning stuff. We think we discover things, right? I mean, that's our assumption. I can figure this out. I have to figure this out. I have to discover this. And what Jesus is saying is when it comes to the kingdom of heaven, the only thing that men ever discover is what God has already uncovered. It cannot be known unless it's revealed, revealed by God as the giver. So what are these secrets? Notice it's plural. This is is so amazing, friends. Do you realize what what Jesus is saying? He's saying the truth, the, the most important truths in the universe, the kingdom of heaven, if this is true, right, If there is a God and he is the God uh, that the Bible reveals him to be and we believe that he is, if that's true, then the most important information in the universe for a human being is who is he, what's he like, what does he require, how can I be related to him, what does it mean that he's king, king of what? And Jesus is saying those truths are not indiscriminately available to be accessed by people at their will. He's saying that they are secrets. They are revealed. They are only known if God shows them to you. And what are those secrets? There's more than one, and we'll see what the greatest secret is in the last part of the sermon. But for now, let me just uh, preview some of the other parables in Matthew 13. And we're going to see... That there are all kinds of secrets or mysteries, strange things about the kingdom of heaven that Jesus reveals in his teaching and in his ministry. And one of them has to do with the apparent smallness of the kingdom of heaven, right? That's the parable of the mustard seed. It starts out, it's the smallest of seeds. You go, wait a second, this is crazy. It's the kingdom of heaven. The biggest thing is the smallest thing? That's a mystery. Or, how about its apparent slowness? It's the kingdom of heaven. But in, so, in the parables, it grows and it's like leaven. And it doesn't come like a blitzkrieg. It grows. Think about how things grow. It takes a long time for things to grow. Anything that matters, this is what's interesting. My, lot, my yard is full of, of a lot of growth, but it's nothing that matters. Because it's all the weeds. The weeds come up, man, they're like that second category of soil. Boom! But the things that matter take a long time. Why? The most important thing. Why would it be so slow? And then there's its apparent weakness. The king of heaven. Rejected, mocked, criticized. Criticized. Not uh, overwhelmingly powerful. He looks just like a carpenter from Nazareth. Because he is. Doesn't look like the king of heaven. It's amazing. Friends, when you hear the word secret, right, there's always uh, two sides to that there's the insider and there's the outsider. And does it bother you to hear that God has secrets? I need you to be honest about this that God has secrets that God has things that he doesn't make known to everybody. Does that seem unfair? Well, again, let's, let's, let's go up, okay? The only reason that that would be unfair is if everyone was equally entitled to the kingdom of heaven, right? And then what would happen... The nature of reality would be that our relationship with God would be a matter of right, that we have rights before God, and that He is therefore indebted to us. See how all of this always goes back to your understanding of who God is and your relationship to Him. I cannot commend this theologically-centered way of thinking enough to you because it is the Bible's frame of reference. But friends, I need to say something to you. Creatures, which is what we are, have no rights before God. And more than that, sinners have no rights before God, and God has no debts to sinners. Now, for some of you, that's very offensive, but friends, if God is who He says He is, and if we are who we are, then the one thing that must be true is the currency of our relationship with Him is never going to be our merit or His his indebtedness to us that we can somehow compel him. The only way that God is ever bound to us is by his own sovereign promise. When he makes a promise, it's impossible for him to lie. So he will keep that promise. But notice, that promise is by his accomplishment and his initiative. We all have this massive entitlement problem, don't we? And I'm not just talking about Washington. We wake up in the morning. You notice how the central issue in the budget debates. The central problem, the riddle, the puzzle, the argument source over and over and over again is this problem of entitlements. Friends, I just read that as a living parable of my heart. I wake up in the morning and I have an entitlement problem and why for years I have put a post-it on the bottom of my window. So when I look up from my desk and I look out through the window, the first thing I see is a post-it with Job 41.11 on it. Where God says to Job, who has first given to me that I should repay him? For whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Yes, God has secrets. And God is the one who gives those secrets. And the truth is, we're all equally unentitled to them. So if any of us ever get to know them, it is a marvel of God's grace, right? I mean, that's why Jesus says at the end of, of, of well, in verses 16 and 17, he says to the disciples, do you guys realize how blessed you are? You're more blessed than David. You're more blessed than Isaiah. You're more blessed than Moses was, who stood in the cloud of glory on Mount Sinai with the Lord himself standing next to him, as it were, proclaiming his own name. And Jesus says, your eyes see what they long to see and your eyes hear what they long to hear and didn't namely me, because this has been given, givenness. Verse 11, Jesus emphasizes not just the secrets, but that these secrets are given. To you it has been given, but to them it has not been given. And Jesus is identifying himself as the divine giver. Friends, we've thought about this before, but it bears repeating. God is never known against his will. We can be known against our will. That's why we don't want drones flying over us. That's why we have wiretap laws. It's why we don't want people hacking into our emails, because it is possible for us to be known against our will, but what is true of us is not true of God. Friends, he's God. We're creatures. He breathed an entire universe with supernovas and quasars and black holes into being with the breath of his mouth. He didn't even lift a finger, as it were. How could we ever possibly think that we could extract knowledge of him that was true by the exercise of our own wills? you got to go up if you want to understand what's going on here. Jesus says that all knowledge of God and his kingdom is the gift of God. It's the gift of God. God has to give himself away to human beings in order for human beings to know him. He has to be the initiator. He has to be the giver. Now, this isn't the first place that that Jesus has taught us this. You, You remember chapter 11. Turn with me back to chapter 11. I want to show you this again because Jesus is emphasizing the same thing again, verses 25 through 27. We looked at these verses Uh, in December. And Jesus, they they directly follow Jesus' rejection in three cities where he ministered regularly in Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, where he actually lived after Nazareth. And Jesus says, or Matthew says, at that time, verse 25, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father. (laughs) He's been rejected. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that, now notice this, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. In other words, there were people to whom you didn't give the truth about me, and there were people to whom you did give the truth about me. And he emphasizes that the response to his ministry in and Bethsaida, and Capernaum is grounded ultimately in his Father's sovereign will. You doubt me? Look at verse 26. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. This was no accident. This was a design. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Now notice this. And no one knows the Father except no one knows the Son, excuse me, except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You see what Jesus is saying there? He's saying there is no way that you or I get access to know the Son except through the Father. And there is no way that anyone can know the Father except through the Son. Now that is absolutely amazing. It's the same thing that he's saying in chapter 13. Friends, you realize that what Jesus is saying is that means that the Father... In order for us to know Jesus, the Father has to usher us in. He has to sovereignly open the sacred precincts of his own heart, his own knowledge of his Son. If you're a Christian today, you should be so amazed by these verses because what Jesus is saying is the only reason that you know the Son is because the Eternal Father opened the sacred sanctuary of his own heart and welcomed you into that sanctuary so that you could participate in and share in his knowledge of the Son. And likewise, if you know the Father as your Father and yourself as a child of God, Jesus is saying in verse 27 that the reason you do is because the eternal Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, sovereignly opened the sacred precincts of his own heart and let you in to view the Father through his eyes, to see the Father as a Son through the eyes of the Son, to participate in the eternal Son's knowledge of the Father. Yes, my Christian brothers and sisters, that's how blessed you are. It must be given. You see, we can't pick the lock of the heart of God. We can't knock the door down to get in there. We can't force ourselves behind the eye of the Father. And it is a great mark of our sinfulness that we think that this is achievable. That we are not more humbled by the wonder that the eternal God would make himself known to us. And Jesus is reminding the disciples and us in Matthew 13, that this is a wonder of God's grace. And turn with me to chapter 16, just so, you think, just so you can see that this is not a strange uh, outlying theme in, in Matthew's gospel. It is utterly key. Now chapter 16, very central chapter in Matthew's gospel. Look at verses 16 and 17. This is where Peter's triumphant confession of Jesus is made, verses 16 and 17. Now, well, actually, you could start at verse 15. Jesus says to, to, to the disciples, uh, But who do you say that I am? And Peter, you gotta love him, right? He's always the first to talk. He gets it right. <laughs> Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay, so now the question is, How did he know that? Look at Jesus' interpretation. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Friends, if you confess Christ today, you don't confess him by your own power. You didn't discover him. God uncovered him for you. You should marvel at that grace. That's not saying that you're not responsible to respond. We're going to see that in a a minute. But the root, the root, the wonder is that this eternal God said to you, a sinner, I'm going to show you the Savior. I'm going to let you participate in my knowledge of him. Now, of course, there's another side to that which is what verse 12 is about, if you go back to chapter 13. Because it's sobering, right? It's very sobering. This is the, the judgment side, right? If, 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 if to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. It's a little cryptic. you got to work with this for a while. What Jesus is saying, if I, if I could summarize it this way, is that, you know, all knowledge, if all knowledge of God is a gift, that means that any part of true knowledge about God that, that is in our lives is, not a, is, is held there not as a matter of ownership that we can just hold on to as, a, as an exercise of our will and say, I'm, well, I'm going to keep that much. No, what Jesus is saying is this is a question of stewardship. This is not your property. The knowledge of God is the gift of God. It's actually the property of God entrusted to you. And if you don't respond to it, guess what's going to happen? The master comes and takes away what the steward squanders. And that means not just that it's lost, but that it's actually taken away. Spiritual gain and spiritual loss both compound. They accelerate. Right? They accelerate. And it begins now and ultimately all the way at the end. If you turn your back on Jesus Christ, you will lose. Right? The worst forfeiture imaginable. God in His mercy has brought you near to his son. God in his mercy has brought you around the gospel. And now you, in his sovereignty, he's done that, right? And now you and I must respond to that. And if we don't, then even the little that we have, he will come at some point, right? And to take away that. People often think that they don't have to come to Christ immediately because there'll be another chance to hear the gospel. It's good to know that God's love is out there. It's good to know these things. And so I take that knowledge that, that I hear of the gospel and of the cross. And I say, you know, I'm just going to tuck that away, you know, and file that for future reference. Meanwhile, I'll go out and sow my wild oats. I'll go do what I want because I know that forgiveness is always available. Friends, what you don't understand, if that's how you're thinking, is that sin has a corrosive, blinding, hardening effect. It does not leave you as it found you. It makes you much worse. And there is a judgment aspect to the indulgence in sin over and over and over again that hardens you to the grace of God. It is not a safe thing to play with. And so Jesus is warning us And ultimately, as he turns to explain why he speaks in parables, what we're going to see in verses 13 through 15 is that the parables then are an instrument. Their very obscurity is one way, one expression of God's judgment upon people who have turned their back on him. So let's go now to the human responsibility prong. which is division, Jesus explains the division between unfruitful and fruitful as something that man himself has designed. Verses 13 through 15. Now, in these verses, 13 through 15, Jesus moves into the second part of his explanation to the disciples. And verse 13 is a good summary of everything that's going to follow. So let's look at that. This is why I speak to them in parables. See, it couldn't be any plainer. Because seeing they do not see... And hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Now, see, that's very interesting. Seeing, this is why I talk to them in parables. This is why I make it hard to see and hard to hear. Because seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear. Now, notice what Jesus is saying. He is not saying that they're blind, right? They see. And he is not saying that they're deaf because they hear. What he's saying is it's what they do with their sight. And it's how they use their hearing. And it's how they use their understanding. It's not because they can't hear or they can't see or they can't understand. It's because they don't want to. That's why he talks to them in parables. That's why Jesus quotes. He's quoting Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 there in verses 14 and 15. See this? Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says... Now, this is God's evaluation. You've got to put yourself in the perspective of the text, in the prophecy. This is God evaluating so he knows perfectly, right? Right? This is God speaking to Isaiah about the people in Isaiah's day. The Israel, Isaiah's contemporaries, the spiritual condition of the people in Isaiah's day. And now Jesus is saying, hey, and what was true about those people in Isaiah's day is true about the crowds, and that's why I'm talking to them in parables. Now, what is God's diagnosis of Israel? And there, by extension, what is Jesus' diagnosis of the crowds? You will indeed hear but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. Ah, that's the problem. And with their ears, they can barely hear. It's not a question of ability. It's a question of willingness. And their eyes, you see this, their eyes, they have closed. They're the ones who do it. And why? Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal. You see, what Jesus is saying is their spiritual blindness and their spiritual deafness, as it were, are self-inflicted. That they aren't victims of insufficient ability. They're victims of their own hearts. Their own hearts have grown dull, Jesus is saying. They don't understand because they don't want to understand. Well, why in the world wouldn't they want to understand? I mean, isn't that your question? Why, why would you close your eyes? Why would, you, why would you want your heart to grow dull? Why, why, would you, uh, why would you not bother to try to understand this message? And I think the key is, in the, is at the very end, or it was in the second half of verse 15, right? Why have they close their eyes? Lest they should see with their eyes. See, they, they don't see because they don't want to see and hear with their ears. They don't hear because they don't want to hear and understand with their heart. They don't want, they don't understand deeply because they don't want to understand. Why not? Because if they did, then they would be beholden to God to turn and he would heal them. That is insane, isn't it? You feel the force of that? What? what that text is saying is there's a deliberate response to God's message that these people have adopted, which is, listen, we do not want to listen because we know that if we do, that message is going to call us to turn, to face God, to acknowledge that we need to be healed, that we are powerless to heal ourselves, that we're accountable to him, that we are not our own. And so, at whatever cost we have to incur, we are not going to turn around. And because we don't want to turn around, we're not going to listen. And because we don't want to turn around, we're going to close our eyes. And because we don't want to turn around and repent and face God, I'm going to refuse to understand. Now, not only is that deeply offensive, it's also insane. It's suicidally insane. You know, as we stand at the foot of the cross and we think about what this represents, what this reminds us about the heart of God and the plight of men. God spared no expense. Just think about this. In that Isaiah text, God is moving toward Israel with a desire to heal them. And they say, no way, because healing requires that we submit to God. And, you know, it's even stronger when we think about when we live in the age of the gospel right now, right? Because God moves toward us with the gospel and says, oh, we, we are sick. We are deeply wounded. We are sin. We need healing we are under God's judgment. We're under God's rule. We are accountable to him. He is holy and we are not. And the distance between our unholiness and his holiness cannot be bridged by the work or obedience of men. No, the only way that can ever be bridged, the only way that our guilt can ever be answered, the only way that there can ever be healing for our disease that we can never clean ourselves up from is by the grace and the accomplishment of God in Jesus Christ. And all God says, is turn toward me and I will heal you and we still don't turn Do you know why it's not because we're stupid it's because the DNA of sin is pride and a refusal to acknowledge that God is God and to turn to be healed requires us to humble ourselves before God. We'll have anything else. We'll have disease. We'll have broken lives. We'll have a troubled conscience. We'll have messed up relationships. We'll have no hope. We'll be be willing to pay any price. We'll be be, uh, haunted by fears, haunted by guilt, Uh, we'll constantly feel, we'll, we'll be willing to enter every sphere of life thinking that we have to prove ourselves and justify ourselves. We'll pay any price not to bow the knee. And that's insane. And so God says, if you're one of those people, that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying the crowds are those kind of people. They don't want my healing. They've already rejected my ministry. So why am I going to entrust my heart to them more and more? Now, friends, what we learn from that is that God always gives us what we want. God will always feed us according to our appetite. If we want to feast in knowing Him... He will give us that feast. It will be an all-you-can-eat existence for you. Do you know that about God? Do you know if you come to God through Jesus Christ in sincerity and say, I want to know you. I want to give my life to know you. You will feast because He will feed you according to your appetite. But if you say, you know what, what I want is a famine I don't want to know you then that's what you're going to get with all the consequences so friend let me ask you what do you want it may be the most important question you'll ever be asked in your entire life I don't know if I'm ever going to see you again I might be dead before next Sunday and so might you What do you want? Do you want to hear? Do you want to see? Do you want to be healed? Then right now where you're sitting, lift up your heart now to God and say, give me sight. If you say you want those things, then prove it. Prove it. By going to the giver and saying, I can't get this on my own. You have to give it to me. I see that now from verses 11 and 12 and so now I'm exercising the responsibility that you've given to me as your image bearer to respond and so now here in this seat while the sermon is still going on I am calling out to you and I'm saying please give me sight give me hearing so that I can hear the good news of your son so I can hear and see the good news of the gospel and give me grace to turn toward him in repentance so that I might be healed. See, Friends, today is the day of opportunity And that's our final point I'm going to close with See, God God is so rich in His grace Think about it You know, this truth Of God's sovereignty And this truth about Human responsibility Even the way I've done that with my hands You see, I can't Even my body is a limitation To correctly depict these things I, I like how I'm on a collision course You see that? I, I, I'm misleading in my interpretation of the Bible just by the way I move my hands. Wow. But these two things, I, now I don't know what to do because I need my hands. D- don't rely on the hands, okay? So here's the thing. We pit these things against each other. Maybe that's what I should do. This is, this is the best that we do, right? As we put these things on a collision course. But what we see is from our text is that in the mind and heart of Jesus, these things, it's not either or, it's both and. And these things come together not in, not in a conflict. They meet and kiss. It's not dissonance when they come together. It is beautiful harmony. And it's a music in the gospel of Opportunity opportunity. Today is the day that the Lord has made. It is possible because of both the sovereignty of God and the gift of your responsibility before him in the power of the Spirit to come to turn and be healed. God has brought you to the foot of his cross, his son's cross, and a door A door of God's mercy has been opened by the sovereignty of God and unlike the people in Isaiah's day and unlike the crowds in Jesus' day, guess what? Your story, my story is not over yet. So that means that today... There is an opportunity for you and me to gain vision, the vision of God's kingdom, to have the secret of the kingdom of heaven, the greatest secret of the kingdom of heaven, opened for us by the grace of God and to receive that great gift. We've been blessed. Friends, you realize we've been blessed two levels above and beyond the many prophets and the righteous people, the Old Testament that Jesus talks about. Uh, we're, We're blessed two levels beyond them because we see... Even things that the disciples didn't see. Right? We see a global church. We see 2,000 years of the progress of the gospel. What are we doing? We're not Jews. We're not first century Jews and residents of Jerusalem. And what are we doing following this Messiah? How did this happen? Oh, what our eyes have seen and how we've been privileged. We've been privileged to see much more clearly, even than the disciples did, what the greatest secret of the kingdom of heaven is, friends. What is that secret? Well, I'll tell you what it isn't. It's not that God is king over all. It's not that God has absolute rights to assert his kingship over all of life. It's not that he would come personally to assert those rights over his creation. Friends, those were the... and, And he'd eradicate sin and make all things new. Those were the cherished hopes of every Old Testament saint. Those were the promises of the Old Testament. And everybody knew that those were the promises of the Old Testament. Those aren't a secret in the Bible. So what is Jesus talking about when he talks about the secrets of the kingdom of heaven? Well, here's what nobody knew in full. The greatest secret of the kingdom of heaven is this, that the Lord of glory would come personally to be glorified by being crucified. That the way the king of creation would come to rule his creation would be as a creature. That the way the judge of all the earth would come to judge us is by being judged as our substitute. That the way he would come to free us Would be by being made captive for us. That the way he would come to adopt us as his children is by being willing to be forsaken and disowned. That the way he would come to welcome us into his kingdom is by being cast out personally. That the way he would come to deliver us would be by being delivered over and betrayed. That the way he would come to reconcile us to himself would be at the price of his own estrangement on the cross. Right? That the way that he would come to embrace us would be by being rejected. That the way that he would come to purify us would be by being defiled himself with our sin on the cross. That the way he would come to acquit us and to bless us would be by being cursed in our place and condemned in our place on the cross. Friends, no one understood those things. Paul calls it a secret and hidden wisdom that that the Lord of glory was crucified. This is what Holy Week is about, my friends. This amazing reversal that is accomplished by God's sovereignty. His plan, this reversal, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. How did that happen? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Right? This is Psalm 118. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You see, what Psalm, the people who are quoting Psalm 118, Though they would reject Jesus a few days later, they didn't know how right they were because they're singing verses 25 and 26 in Psalm 118. They're saying, save us, O Lord. That's what Hosanna means. Save us, O Lord. But right before that, three verses before it, you have the story of the builders rejecting the stone. And, And yet that rejected stone somehow becomes the cornerstone. The builders who ought to know better reject the cornerstone and somehow, uh, re- reject the cornerstone, and somehow that, that stone gets, gets vindicated. and the way it gets vindicated is by the Lord's doing. That's what Psalm 118 says. And this is marvelous in our eyes. You see, that's the sovereignty of God reversing the tragic error of men. That's what the cross is. And that's what the resurrection is. Jesus' crucifixion. And our rejection of him is the worst mistake that a human being can ever make. But hallelujah, that the story of Holy Week is this, that God in Jesus Christ, God did not let our worst decisions stand, but overturned them in the resurrection of his son and now offers that risen Lord to us in the day of resurrection, which we live in. The day of resurrection is not next Sunday. It's now. It started when Jesus exited that tomb, and we are living and walking in it now. And so now the call, my friends, that day of opportunity is here for us to enter that joy, to enter that worship and gladness in Jesus Christ, to, to use the the responsibility that God has given to us, resting on the sovereignty of God and move toward Christ with all our might today. Friends, it is our eyes that are most blessed because of what they see, and it's our ears that are most blessed because of what they hear, because there were many prophets, many righteous people who desired to see what you and I see and what you and I hear and did not See it or hear it. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray now for your heart to win ours. Conquer us according to your sovereign grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Will you please stand?